This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to another live weekly episode of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. We're here for the next hour or so, actually till about 9 o'clock sharp, um, here on Space 101.1 FM. You can tune us in on the radio in North Seattle at 101.1 FM on an old-fashioned radio or a modern new radio, too. You can also stream us at space101fm.org from anywhere. If you go to that website as well, there's other information about all the other great programs that are on this station around the clock, uh, seven days a week. 31 to 28 days a month, 365 to 366 days a year. Coming up next, actually, at 9 o'clock, Jay's Radio Hour will be here for another exciting night of uh, live people playing old 78s. What Jay's got tonight is a focus on the early days of country, including the first vocal hillbilly record ever made. As I say, all on the original 78 records, and it's uh, it's the pop and the hiss is the most exciting part of that show, and plus the other songs and the stuff Jay talks about. So you'll want to stay tuned if you're listening to this broadcast live right now. If you're listening to the podcast, I think you can find Jay's podcasts online as well. So anyway, we, we have a special show planned for tonight because it's National DJ Day. I think it technically was yesterday. Uh, it's January 20th. But the best known, greatest uh, DJ and Renaissance man of all time in the Pacific Northwest, Pat O'Day has got to be that guy. He passed away back in 2020 at age 85. But he was around for decades, and uh, we're going to hear a couple of long extended cuts from an oral history interview he sat down for back in the late 1970s. And he goes all into his early history and watching his dad uh, do radio broadcasts and talks about all the little stations he worked at in all these little towns around the Northwest. Um, But before we do that, I don't want to forget that next Sunday night, if you're anywhere close to Parkland, Washington in Pierce County, you'll want to come and join us for one of our exciting live remote broadcasts. It's exciting because all the technical stuff has to work for it to all come together. We're going to be uh, hanging out with the people from the group Save Our Historic Parkland School. I might not have that name correctly, but they've been working for a couple of years to preserve an old elementary school that is essentially the, one of the only remaining landmarks in the community of Parkland, east of Tacoma, down in Pierce County. So they've got a big fundraising deadline coming up to raise money to support – to pr- actually purchase the school. And it, it's a very exciting program. We've, we've had them as guests on this show before. But we're, gonna, we're taking this show on the road. We're going to be there next Sunday night, January 28th. Not at Parkland School, but right across the street at the uh, – it's called the T- uh, Trinity Lutheran Church. This is open to the public. Come down. You can clap. You can boo. You can ask questions. You can be part of the show. We've done live remotes before. We've, we were at Burgermaster, I think was the first one we did back in December of 2022. Uh, we've done one at the old uh, couple times from Memorial Stadium. So this one, this is we're taking it far away from, from home here, from our headquarters here at Sandpoint, uh, the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station at Magnuson Park. But mark that on your calendar. It's 8 o'clock. Come early. Come around 730 so you can get a good seat. 
There'll be some warm-up acts, music and stuff like that, and we'll do spend an hour talking about not just the Parkland School but all kinds of cool Pierce County history. I'm inviting some other people from some of the other projects that we focused on down there. I think we've um, hopefully someone from Save the Ryan House over in Sumner will be able to join us. Maybe uh, one of the great historians who do work does work in the Tacoma area. Kind of a Pierce County-focused show, but um, should be a real blast to have you come down there and join us in person. I love – I've only been able to do it a few times in my quote-unquote career, but doing the live broadcast where you've got an audience there to react to and clap and boo and stuff and everything, it's, it's so much more fun than just sitting in this little – this lonely little studio here in uh, North Seattle. So it should be a much different, uh, much different ball game next Sunday night. So, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll remind you a few times about that show. Um, and if you're hearing the podcast, uh, definitely it's January 28th is when the, the big live show is going to be, live remote show. Um, and if you, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, it's a good way to not miss this show because who has time on Sunday night at 8 o'clock other than me to focus for an hour on Northwest history? I guess, I guess our guests would, would be fall into that category as well. But anyway, um, the podcast is available at all the podcast platforms, and you can sign up, and we try to post it usually within, oh, within 15 or 20 minutes of the show actually ending. It's a great way to get an hour's worth of uh, Northwest history, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, whatever we're focused on for that week. And uh, you can play it back and share it with your friends. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And if you like it, uh, give us a big multi-point rating. I don't know what's the scale. Is it, it's like a it's a Thai food scale or like five stars, I think, is what we're looking for. So anyway, Pat O'Day, the focus of tonight's show. Let's tell a little sample. This is Pat's best known for being a disc jockey on KJR and the golden years of KJR back in the 1960s. This is a little bit of Pat, um, I believe, I know this is from 1962, and if my notes are correct on this file that I was transferring earlier today, this is this was actually broadcast either from the World's Fairgrounds during the fair or very close by. So let's, this is, gives you a little sample, just a very little sample of some of Pat O'Day's on-air work back in 1962 on KJR. This is on Space 101.1 FM. And you Oh, KJR presenting Barbara Lynn and a preview extra. And if you like it, vote for it for the Fabulous 50. We'd like to right now say hi to our Fabulous 50 winner of the week, Bobby Mann, on the 101 D Street, Southeast in Auburn. Bob, congratulations. Won the entire survey this week. We salute you, Bobby. We'd also like to salute the weatherman who comes up with a cast of 50 for the low tonight. Uh, high tomorrow, sun laden, high of 78. The wind's 5 to 15. Accident reports from KJR traffic. Uh, fourth and Blanchard, an accident. That about four minutes ago. 24th and Jackson, an accident. A lot of congestion in that area. Stay clear of there if you possibly can. KJR, Seattle, Channel 95. Another sound citizen service. Tonight, Jerry Kay from 9 until midnight. Dick Curtis, 6 to 9 tonight with that big battle of the new sounds on KJR. Listen, you'll have a chance to vote. For one of your favorite brand new songs, that's tonight on the Battle of the New Sounds from the Big K, Seattle, 1305. Get that card in the mail today and address it to Agent 95 KJR. Tell them where you will rendezvous with him on Sunday afternoon. You can win a trip to Lake Tahoe, all expenses paid by KJR. Second prize is a trip to Wolverton Mountain there. Good luck. They say don't go. <laughs> if, if you're a certain age and you grew up in the Pacific Northwest, yeah, you, Pat O'Day's voice is one of the most recognizable voices, probably after your own parents, maybe. Um, Pat O'Day and J.P. Patches might be in the top five recognizable voices in the Northwest. A, a real Renaissance man, a disc jockey for a long time, but really a pop culture kind of Renaissance icon for probably 60 years, I would say. You know, he got a concert promotion company. He did dances. Um, he managed Jimi Hendrix or promoted Jimi Hendrix concerts and stuff. And just 
every time I interviewed him, which I got to interview him about a dozen times, maybe in the last 20 years, um, and he was always really excited about local history and had a really good sense of things, really sharp memory. And in this this oral history that we're going to play about, I'm going to play two big 25-minute chunks of it, if I, if I can stop myself talking and get the tape playing. But um, he's just got a sharp mind. He's, you can hear some questions being asked in the background. It's Hugh Rundle was a professor at Washington State University who put together this massive oral history effort back in the 60s and 70s to record interviews with all kinds of figures from radio. And I got to digitize all those interviews. This is probably going on 10 years ago when I was doing some work for the Murrow College over there in Pullman. And um, it's just some great stuff. And we'll, we'll dig more into the archives of this stuff as for future episodes of Cascade of History. But let's, let's get right to Pat O'Day. And in this first, uh, first of two big installments, he talks about his uh, childhood. Uh, and he talks about some of the early stations he worked for. He goes into a lot of specific detail, but he talks pretty fast and he keeps it fast moving and keeps it interesting. So I think, uh, you know, just uh, go along for the ride with a, with a great storyteller relating an amazing career here in the Northwest in radio and all kinds of other things. Here's Pat O'Day on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Now tell me how you got into broadcasting, Pat, where you came from, and uh, what your first experiences were. Well, my first uh, association or interest in broadcasting came. My uh, father was the uh, pastor of the Christian Missionary Alliance Church at uh, 5th and M Street in Tacoma, and uh, we had moved to Tacoma from Nebraska in 1940, actually in February of 1942, and uh, very shortly thereafter, um, he established a a 15-minute radio program on KMO uh, in Tacoma that followed uh, Glenn Hardy and the uh, the Alka-Seltzer news in the morning was from 9 to 9.15 and uh, my father's program which was called Revival Echoes uh, was heard on KMO from 9.15 to 9.30 uh, Monday through Saturday mornings. So it was during that time I believe uh, uh, I was probably eight or nine years old that uh, at every opportunity I would travel with him to the station, which was then, of course, in Tacoma, entered either from Broadway or up in the alley between Broadway and uh, and uh, Market Street, there by the old Rialto Theater to those KMO studios, and uh, would watch him do his program. Uh, of course, the days that he was away or something, they would go on the giant tranks at that time, would be recorded. But uh, I would sit in the lobby of the studio, and uh, there developed in me at that time uh, a great love for this thing called broadcasting. Uh, Being a part of a family with my father, a minister and a very articulate man, uh, speaking was something I was very fond of at that time. And I saw that uh, at a very early age that uh, speaking and radio might make just a super combination for me. Do you know uh, people around KMO at that time? Well, the... Uh, the only name I really remember at that time uh, was as a youngster. I was fascinated in 1945. Uh, Rod Belcher and Clay Huntington returned from the service from the Navy and uh, both went to work at KMO. Uh, Clay Huntington and Rod both being news and announcers and sportscasters at that time. Then, of course, Clay went on to be the play-by-play man for the Tacoma Tigers uh, in 1946, and Rod Belcher was his color man at that time. So those two names, uh, I recall Rod at the turntables and recall Clay, and they were both great heroes to me at that time. Uh, my father after uh, left KMO then after a period of time and uh, had his program on KTBI, which, of course, later 
uh, became KTAC. KTBI was located out on uh, Center Street at that time. They were 1490 on the dial, 250 watts then. Uh, this continued until my father passed away in Tacoma in 1948, and, uh, and we moved back to Iowa for a period of time, then came back and uh, lived in Tacoma, uh, where it was my privilege to live next door to Clay Huntington's brother, Sam Huntington, in South Tacoma, and uh, I used to anxiously await in the yard on Sundays when Clay might stop by to see his brother, and his mother lived there as well. Just the glimpse of Clay was like a glimpse of your favorite movie star. And uh, then I would uh, I sought employment and uh, sold peanuts and popcorn, worked on the ground crew, and also uh, pitched early batting practice at the Tacoma Baseball Park. Again, this allowed me to be around Clay and uh, sneak into the back of the broadcast box now and then and watch the actual play-by-play going on. I uh, went to school in, uh, we moved to Bremerton then, and uh, attended school in Bremerton, uh, Oh, majoring in everything I could do that had to do with communications. I did the public address system for the basketball games and uh, would do the announcing at halftime for the for the band when they performed. Uh, went to Olympic Junior College, uh, studying radio in Bremerton. Uh, finally ending up uh, at uh, Tacoma Vocational, uh, where Merle Kimball uh, was the head of instruction and John McClamrock and... Uh, I was sent there uh, by Bill DeRay. Bill DeRay worked at uh, KBRO in Bremerton along with Claude Brim. And uh, I used to go down and watch them do their shows. Bill Luckhurst was there at that time, uh, as was, uh, I believe, uh, the fellow Purcell, is it, that was with Cairo and then went to work out at the orthopedic hospital. Uh, and he was a newsman. In any event, uh, there were uh, oh, Bill Stewart was also at KBRO at that time. Great broadcasters, and I used to hang around down there. Remained friends with Bill DeRay, who in the meantime went to KTNT in Tacoma. And it was Bill who suggested that I attend Tacoma Vocational. He felt it was a good school and it would be a good broadcast school for me. So I attended there in 1955 and uh, through the early part of 1956 uh, under Merle Kimball, who I will have to say has been the single biggest influence uh, upon me as a broadcaster because Merle uh, really taught the basics, really believed in the basics like no other instructor I've, I've ever been around, and uh, yet he believed in the contemporary application of the basics. And uh, so under, under uh, uh, I can never thank the man enough for his comment. And he took a personal interest in me for some reason, and we became very close friends, and I used to go up. He would work the Sunday morning show, uh, from 6 a.m. to noon uh, for Mrs. Irwin up at KVI when they were in the Camelin Hotel at that time. So uh, naturally Merle would let me. So my Sunday mornings were spent in Seattle at the Camelin Hotel watching Merle do his Sunday morning show on KVI, bringing the mutual network in and doing the morning news. Uh, in the meantime, I picked up a job working part-time at KTAC, uh, Dick Velo was the chief engineer then. Dick Weeks was there, Jerry Gian, And I was the uh, engineer and official coffee pourer and breakfast server for Breakfast with McMurtry, which was a longtime traditional Tacoma talk show at that time uh, done by Bert McMurtry. Bert had formerly oh, been with – I was uh, 20 at the time. And uh, Bert had been with CBS and had been with the big networks, and Bert would uh, – uh, 
just regale me with stories of the great network days, and and I used to enjoy it immensely. And so I was uh, would also do the engineering for such things as the Browns Point Salmon Derby, and uh, KTAC did many, many, many remotes at that time, and I would take the equipment out and occasionally even had the opportunity to speak on microphone. So I worked at KTAC part-time. I was also driving bus for Tacoma Transit Company at the time uh, and attending Tacoma Vocational School. Uh, became well acquainted during those years with Rod Hammett, who uh, was the all-night man at KJR, and I used to... I was a real radio station bum. Wherever I could find someone that would let me in the back door, I was there uh, observing the operation. And uh, so then in 19, August of 1956, um, I learned of an opportunity at Astoria, Oregon at KVAS, and uh, wanting to get into radio full-time, I... Uh, uh, first of all, married my wife, Joni, and uh, secondly, moved uh, to Astoria, Oregon, uh, where for $240 a month, uh, I first of all turned my car back to the finance company and took to walking, got a little apartment in Astoria, but realizing a price had to be paid to be in radio full-time. And at uh, KVAS in Astoria, I worked under Neil Sargent, who originally was from Tacoma. He's now a broadcaster, a sales manager in Phoenix, Arizona. The owner of KVS was a Tom Williams, who still resides in Astoria, and he owns the Clatsop County, or at that time he owned the Clatsop County TV cable company. KVAS is a 250-watt station. Uh, I was at KVAS as a disc jockey and music director and did some play-by-play -play sports until uh, February of 1957, when uh, John Carlson at KLOG in uh, Kelso uh, came down and offered me the opportunity to go to Kelso. And uh, so I made the move at that time. I was the uh, uh, sports director of the station, program director, music director, and morning drive disc jockey from 6 to 10 a.m. Um, I was in Kelso uh, working. That's when the station was still on, the, when KLOG was still on the golf course there, on the Elks Golf Course. And I had a visit one day, which was one of the most exciting moments of my life. Mr. Wally Nelscog walked in the back door of the station while I was on the air on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, Wally told me he naturally had always been a great hero of mine. I'd uh, admired he and Bob Salter and, and uh, Al Cummings and, uh, and uh, Seattle's radio greats of those days. And uh, Wally offered me a job as uh, to come to Cutie, which uh, excited me greatly. Of course, he had uh, been at Cutie about two years. He'd gone off on his own, something I had admired, and built his station in Yakima and achieved great success with that daylighter over there. And uh, so I was delighted by the opportunity, not only for a little increase in pay, uh, delighted by the opportunity to go to Yakima, which has always been one of my favorite towns, but also primarily and above all, the opportunity to work for Wally Nilscog. That was, to me, the ultimate. He was driving to Portland, and he heard me on the radio as he was driving through and decided that he would like to have that young man work for him, uh, not knowing at that time that that young man on the air was extremely anxious to work for him. So it was agreed that I would go to Cutie, and there I would be the music director and the afternoon disc jockey. Uh, a period of time went by in which we were in the process of uh, winding up our affairs and packing our meager belongings together, and I'd given my notice at the station when I received a call from his manager, the manager of Cutie, and I do not recall the name, but as the conversation went along, uh, 
he said, well, I'm sure you're going to like it here in Montana. And I said, um, I was quite surprised when he said that. And I said, well, excuse me, in Montana? He said, well, yes. He said, this is Cutie in Great Falls. I said, oh, my goodness. I said, I understood the job was at Cutie in Yakima. He said, well, it might have been when Wally talked to you, but he says, we've decided, he said, we need you up here in Great Falls. And he says, the job will be at Cutie in Great Falls, he said, for at least for an interim period of time. So I immediately called Wally back, and I said, Wally, I said, I, my wife is pregnant again. She likes to be somewhere near her folks. I said, I want to get back to Seattle someday. I said, it looks like I'm getting a little sidetracked. And I said, I really can't go to Great Falls. And uh, so Wally said, well, he had just made the decision. He had sold Cutie and Yakima, and uh, that uh, he really didn't think that it would be fair to hire me for Cutie and Yakima when he couldn't ensure what my future would be there. Um, I've always accused Wally of uh, maybe trying to sort of railroad me off to Montana. <laughs> and we've kidded about it many times. So I gave up on uh, working for a cutie at that point until about three or four weeks later I had a call from Dick Fleming, who was the interim manager, uh, while they're waiting for the new owner to take over. And uh, Dick Fleming, through Neil Day, an accountant in Yakima, who I had met in Bremerton, uh, had recommended me. Uh, Dick had received, gotten a hold of a tape of my air work. So Dick called me, went to Yakima, and went to work at Cutie in Yakima in August of 1957. Uh, about six weeks after arriving there, the station finally did change hands, and Harrison Roddick, who is a Chicago businessman, a uh, very well-to-do Chicago businessman, I think one of his uh, great moments is he'd received the Navy E for efficiency. He was an industrial consultant a time and efficiency man during the Second World War and a very good friend of Shorty Rogers and a ranking Republican in the state of Illinois. And uh, he came and took over the station, and we were a very, very, very successful uh, top 40 operation. Uh, during December of the previous year, that daylight on Yakima had billed an incredible $22,000 and uh, on, the re on the basis of these billings, Wally had sold the station to Roddick for $264,000, which was an unheard-of price for a daylighter in Yakima, Washington. Uh, the station was still doing very well, and I went on the air as the afternoon air personality. I believe I went on the air at noon and worked until whenever sundown, whenever we went off the air. But in, uh, in the 1st of November, or middle of November, uh, Roddick had joined the country club, the Yakima Country Club, and at that time rock and roll music did not have the uh, the acceptance that it enjoys today, and the people of the country club uh, were giving Roddick quite a bad time over the type of music played on the station. People like Gene Vincent and the Bobettes and Buddy Holly and Fats Domino. He was kind of thin-skinned and he couldn't take this kidding and he came in one day and said that he was humiliated by the image of the station he had purchased and if we would go out to his Cadillac in the parking lot uh, we could bring in the new KUTI music we would no longer be cutie we would now be KUTI and the new music library was in the trunk of the car so I went out as music director to bring in our new library and there were boxes of great show albums uh, there was classical music uh, there was a fine selection from his personal album collection, and this was to be the new music at Cutie. Cutie, by the way, then, just for the record, was out on Butterfield Road, a building that since then has burned down. 
but uh, we occupied a small house that Wally had turned into a radio station. At one point, the transmitter was in the kitchen, and the floor had collapsed in the tr- under the weight of the transmitter, and, and the control room was also in there. As such, you went down two steps to get into the control room because after the floor had collapsed, there was really no way to rebuild the floor back up again, so the floor of the, tran- of the transmitter and control room rested on the ground while the rest of the station was on its original wooden foundation. Wally, our production room, Wally, when he went in there, of course, Wally was on a shoestring, and Wally had built the production room board out of an Army footlocker. And uh, Wally, being a great engineer, had scrounged up pots and a VU meter and a few switches, and the production board was an old Army footlocker. Uh, we did have a nice control room with nice new RCA gear. Uh, other people that were there at that time, Bill Bainter was there, a man named Hal Thomas, who worked in Seattle Radio for many years. He'd worked at KOMO and at KJR during network days. Um, those are the only names other than Dick Fleming, who was the manager, that I recall right now. Uh, it was while at KUTI that I came in contact with a fellow who was, had just graduated from Wapato High School, who hung around the station all the time, and uh, I introduced him to Harrison Roddick, and as a result of those conversations, Lee Hurley became our chief engineer at uh, Cutie and Yakima. Well, going back to the music, the music came in the door, and uh, I went into Roddick's office that afternoon and uh, attempted to explain to him that there was a direct correlation between the type of music we were playing, uh, embarrassing to him or not, there was a connection between the type of music we were playing, the amount of business we had on the air, and we were virtually sold out, and the price that he had paid for the radio station, that these all went together and that you really couldn't have one without the other. Uh, he, uh, he was ambivalent uh, to my feelings on that, and... Uh, as a result, the station went good music, and he asked me if I was going to be happy there this way, and I said, well, I was just very disappointed because Cutie was a great radio station, was, along with KIT, the most popular stations in Yakima, and I felt that he was sacrificing that just because of some comments that really didn't relate to uh, to the station, and so he fired me that day. Uh, not the best time to be fired because um, my second son, Gary, was a, uh, uh, only about a month away, and uh, so I uh, checked around quickly for radio work, and there wasn't much to be found. So I went to work for Sears and Roebuck sell- in Yakima selling uh, uh, work clothes in the men's department. <clears throat> and it was while I was doing this, and I'd put in applications with KIT and KLOQ. I went down to Prosser to carry and applied. I applied with uh, uh, at Crew and Sunnyside and down to KALE in uh, Richland and uh, went to Spokane, made an application with Del Cody and Gene Williams over there. And uh, it was uh, getting near the holiday time and not much was happening when a man came to town named James Brinkmeyer. And Jim was a salesman for Universal Publicizers, Burroughs, out of Chicago. They were the ones that packaged the radio sales gimmick of the clock radio, of the, clock radio the microphone radios that went on the counter, uh, what they would do is find a station in somewhat a distressed situation, would come into town, sell this big package. The station would receive a third of the money, and Burroughs in Chicago would receive two-thirds, of which approximately a third went to the salesman. So I ran across Brinkmeyer somewhere, 
and uh, he asked me if I'd like to go to work with him on a promotion where we would sell the Burroughs Package Universal Publicizers for uh, KLOQ, which was then owned by Warren Durham, uh, Bob McCaw, and uh, Tommy Olson. It was being managed by Warren Durham. Uh, Lloyd Davis Court was there at that time. Frosty Fowler was the program director. Uh, Dave uh, Hubert, who's now at Cairo, was the chief engineer. There was a gentleman named Dan Kehoe there at that time who had come from Texas. Uh, Paul Jones was working there as a salesman. Paul, who had been with Warren in the agency business in Seattle, and they'd had the Geo Guy account, and Paul had been with Jessica prior to that. So I went to work uh, selling, although I'd not sold radio time before. I'd made many calls when I was in uh, when I was in Longview and in Astoria on a client's, and uh, and uh, had not really sold myself, but. Uh, the wolf was at the door, and uh, I was on the street selling radio, and I had a very exciting time. Uh, I made in commissions $2,800 during the last two weeks of December and the first three weeks of January, uh, selling radio time like no one can believe. Some of my clients were United Builders and uh, uh, Schultz Furniture Store and... Uh, Oh, I can't think of them all at this time. But I had Yakima countertops loaded with microphone radios by by the end of January. And at that point, Frosty Fowler had been accepted. Uh, he had applied at KING in Seattle and had been accepted. And Warren Durham asked me if I'd like to come to KLOQ as a disc jockey and the program director there, uh, which I did beginning there uh, in February of 1958. Uh, KLOQ at that time was located out on... Um, Oh, what is the name? Mead Avenue. On Mead Avenue, where right where the Value Mart store is there now, or what was the Value Mart store, we, we had an old Army barracks building, a very long, uh, extremely ugly building. And uh, the equipment was, uh, well, we had the original KR- KRSC transmitter. Uh, we had other equipment that had been borrowed from here and there. Uh, KLOQ had previously been KYAK, Kayak in Yakima, which was primarily a, a farm station and a mutual network station, but specializing in agricultural news for the Valley area. So shortly thereafter, I, uh, our engineering was in rather bad shape, and uh, Dave Hubert, in the meantime, left uh, to come to Seattle or to go to Seattle to go to work. I believe he went to Seattle from there, or either there or to KIT. And uh, so I convinced Warren Durham that we should hire Lee Hurley from over at uh, Cutie. So Lee came to work, and I was humiliated by the by the facility, by the appearance of it, and by the equipment. So I asked Warren Durham if I could trade out all the supplies, if we could sort of rebuild the station. And Warren agreed to, A, let me trade it out, and B, rebuild the station. So Lee Hurley and I drew up our plans, and during the spring and summer and early fall, of 1958, we totally redid KLOQ. We tore out all the studs in the rear half of the building, designed a newsroom, a production room, and uh, uh, traded out equipment, and uh, Lee Hurley designed his first console there that uh, we put together a concept and completely customized the idea of consoles and turntables and and built a a situation that up until two years ago before they moved was still in use. And... uh, I enjoyed that. I had a great deal of pride in uh, being able to actually construct my own studios and production rooms and so on, and a lot of hours because I was on the air from 9 to noon and 3 to 6 and was music director, 
and uh, did my appearances. But Lee and I would generally get off the I'd get off the air at six. Lee would work all day, and he and I would generally work till about two or three o'clock in the morning on the project. Joining us on the project soon after we started was Bill Sheila. Let, let me interrupt. What were your main thoughts about what should go where and why when you were rebuilding that? Well, we. We felt that the traditional control room was wrong. The big RCA turntable in its giant box always sat to the side of the airman, and we felt the turntable should be in front of the disc jockey, where he could look at the record, where he could put the needle in the groove, where he could cue while he was reading copy directly in front of him. So we built a very thin line console, which is about four inches high, and then placed the turntables on top of the console. Uh, put the vertical attenuators directly in front of the man on the board, on the table, and then hung a copy board just a little higher in front, <clears throat> having three shelves also directly in front, which held uh, uh, the records, the albums, uh, and uh, also we had bins there because our commercials were on seven and a half inches per second tape, and we had three MagnaCorder tape recorders. And uh, when a young airman today puts a cartridge in a machine and it's automatically cued, he doesn't know what he missed uh, because we would, uh, from a standpoint of cost savings, we really couldn't afford too many reels of tape. So we would take a half an hour reel of, uh, of tape, generally a, a half hour reel that we had failed to send back from some religious program or failed to send back to Washington State or somewhere, and that would have uh, an entire 30 minutes of commercials on it. And on the front of the, on the tape box would say that cuts one, two, and three, uh, were for the office barbecue. Cuts four, five, and six were Maury and Henry's used cars. Cuts eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve were for South uh, Yakima Farm Implement Company. So to get to your spot, you would put on the half hour reel and with the slow fast forward on the magna quarter would cue all the way in to where the commercial was. So when records were playing in those days, the disc jockey was faced with frantic activity getting his commercials ready to play. Uh, in the larger markets, of course, at that time, everything was on ET, was on tranks. But in Yakima, we had neither the equipment uh, uh, to cut the trank nor the budget to afford uh, buying all that, that, that amount of wax. We had to stay with the tapes. This is Felix Bonnell on Space 101.1 FM. You're listening to a vintage oral history recording from the late, great Pat O'Day, recorded back in the 1970s for Washington State University. We've got another long segment to get into here. I love the minutiae and the esoterica and just Pat's voice and telling these stories and all hearing the names of all those great Northwest towns. Here's the next big chunk here on Cascade of History and uh, back to Pat O'Day. Our air staff in the fall of 1958 uh, included uh, Jerry Kay. Who, uh, whose real name was Jerry King. Jerry eventually went on to work, of course, with me at KJR when I uh, became program director there, uh, then went on and eventually to WLS in Chicago, and has now left radio and is residing in Yakima. Uh, <clears throat> the night or the midday man at that time was Calvin Vandegrift, who had come from uh, the Tacoma Broadcast School, and uh, I hired Cal. He worked during, for us during the fall of 58, and Cal, of course, is now... Uh, one of the top salesmen with uh, with IGM and has been with them for many years. Uh, it in uh, January of 1959, uh, I received a call from uh, from Gil Bond, who was uh, at KAYO at the time, and uh, Gil said they were looking for uh, a new disc jockey at KAYO, and would I be interested in sending a tape over? And uh, 
of course, I was very interested and uh, prepared an audition tape, sent it over, and uh, was hired by Gil Bond and Ted Bell and Bob Pollock uh, the end of uh, January of 1959. And it was at that point that uh, my wife, Joni, myself, and then a family of uh, Gary and Jerry uh, moved to Seattle. Uh, it's at that point that the story of, uh, of uh, my name, how my name change came about. Up until that time, I had gone under the name that uh, had been given me by my parents, Paul Berg. Uh, I had found certain problems with the name. It was seemingly not easy to recall. I would get mail for Hallberg, and, uh, and uh, maybe I said my name too quickly. In any event, I told uh, Ted Bell and Gil Bond that I was really looking for a new name, that I very much wanted to change my name before I went on the air for the first time in Seattle. And through a process of elimination and a discussion in Ted Bell's office, uh, it was, and many have claimed credit for this, but it was, in fact, the late Ted Bell who came up with the name Pat O'Day. He thought with O'Day High School and so on in Seattle, a good Irish name would be magic, uh, but he thought we should spell it O-D-A-Y. Well, I concurred. I thought it was a marvelous name, and from that date forward, uh, uh, February 1st, 1959, uh, I was Pat O'Day. Had a very happy year at K-A-Y-O. Uh, but in the fall of that year, Jessica felt that Top 40 Radio uh, was uh, facing serious problems. That was the year that Mitch Miller stood before the the Billboard Convention or the, the National Disc Jockey Convention and stated that uh, rock and roll music was on its way out, that it would never last. And there were those that, uh, that took him very seriously. As a matter of fact, KJR took him seriously at that time. And KJR, in early 1959, switched to good music. Uh, KJR had been the number one rock and roll station in Seattle with uh, Wally Nelscock and with uh, Bob Salter and Dick Stokey and uh, Rick Thomas. And uh, But in the meantime, uh, Archie Taft had uh, switched to full top 40 rock and roll at KOL and uh, had brought Al Cummings to KOL after Al's short stint in New York. Uh, had hired Rick Thomas away from KJR, had Ray Hutchinson and Art Simpson and uh, uh, Fleming, and I can't think of Fleming's first name. He's now in Alaska in radio. And then uh, Chuck Ellsworth, who now is still with the Tacoma Vocational School in Tacoma, but Chuck Ellsworth was with him at that time. That was their disc jockey staff. And uh, KJR, sensing the competition from KOL, but really, I think, actually believing that... Uh, the rock and roll maybe was not here to stay with their air staff at that time of Dick Stokey and Gil Henry and uh, Big Daddy Dave Clark and uh, Bill Shonley was there at that time. KJR went a more soft music format and quickly plummeted to about number six or seven in the marketplace. Uh, that year of 1959 also marked the year of Wally Nell's Cog's reentry into Seattle and this time uh, after he purchased KLAN in Renton from Brother Ralph Sanders, and uh, they uh, changed the call letters to KQTY Cutie and uh, went on the air with a good solid top 40 format. So there was an abundance of rock and roll radio in Seattle uh, during that summer, and KO had, a f had failed to achieve any real dominance, number one. Number two, Jessica. Uh, also somewhat believed, as did Gill, I believe, that uh, maybe rock and roll wasn't here to stay. And uh, so during the fall of 1959, uh, under the program directorship of a gentleman they'd hired from Sacramento, a guy named Ray Golden, KAYO picked up the mutual network and went to a soft music format. Uh, 
I believed in rock and roll, Hugh. I uh, believed in Top 40 Radio. I felt that it was the real, uh, the real opportunity for radio to have a broad, broad listening audience because Top 40 Radio had a way of captivating the kids, of controlling the radio in the house. But I also saw that this thing called Top 40 was making awesome inroads into the adults. The housewives love to work to it. They love to snap their fingers to it. I saw the tremendous ratings on American Bandstand with Dick Clark. Now, the question was, was Jessica losing money at this time? I don't believe that uh, that Jessica was losing money, but she wasn't making any headway. She'd become accustomed to making money for quite a period of time, especially during the spring and summer of... Uh, of 1959 and with Wally's coming into the market and KING was a top 40 station at that time with uh, with um, let's see Ray Brim Ray Bream and Frosty Fowler and uh, I don't remember the other personalities there but uh, uh, and then KOL had a tremendous lead KOL was a, was a substantial number one in the market and uh, this was putting a squeeze on, and Jessica felt that she could move into an area that might have a greater profitability factor to it. So, uh, and as I mentioned, with my belief that Top 40 Radio at that time was really the answer to dominance and really the answer to high profitability, and I had a job offer from John Stone, who was then the program director of KJR, and KJR just then returned to Top 40 after their plummet, uh, from the lofty heights they'd enjoyed over the years, uh, Les Smith said, whoops, we made a mistake, and they decided to turn it around. So I went to KJR at uh, the beginning of 1960 as the 6 to 9 man, and uh, the uh, staff at KJR at that time was, uh morning man was Lee Perkins, who is now, of course, the head of instruction down at Bates in Tacoma, uh, Dave Clark, Big Daddy Dave Clark, who eventually then went to KVI, was 9 to noon. Chuck Brass, a uh, real Seattle radio veteran for many, many, many years, and now uh, as, as a teacher out of John Marshall Junior High School, a music teacher, was the midday man. Uh, John Stone was afternoon drive. I was the 6 to 9 man, and Ron Bailey of the Ron Bailey School of Broadcast came up from Salt Lake City the same time I joined KJR. And uh, he was the 9 to Midnight Man, and Russ Stringham, who is also now at Bates Vocational in Tacoma, one of the instructors there. Uh, prior to that was the program director of uh, KRKO in Everett. He was the all-night disc jockey. I remained in the evening show until uh, John... No, the station manager was Galen Blackford, the late Galen Blackford. Uh, Homer Pope was director of operations. Uh, the uh, newsman was Lou Gillette. The uh, chief engineer was George Newton. Um, the uh, office staff, Ann uh, Collins, or Ann Lombardo, who was still with KJR, was uh, Mr. Blackford's secretary at that time. Uh, we were joined soon after that by Lee Keplinger, the late Dick Keplinger's wife, who is now Lee Nichols, who worked in the traffic department. Uh, the sales department consisted then of, uh, of uh, Don Courtney, uh, Art Coleman was the sales manager. Uh, Glant, and which Glant started uh, the Bellevue station, started uh, KFKF? Uh, is that uh, Irv Glant? I believe it was Irv Glant. Anyway, he was one of the salesmen at that time. Um, let's see, who else was on that staff? I really think that was about it. Used to spend many nights 
at the Blue Eagle, which is uh, located near KJR. After Ron, I would do the air show from six to nine, and then I was the newsman at KJR from nine till midnight. And uh, when Ron Bailey and I would get off the air, and this was during the year of 1960, uh, we would retire to the Blue Eagle for an hour and a half or two of beer and uh, talking about our future in radio and uh, talking about our dreams. And Ron had an idea that he could start a disc jockey school and that it could really be a successful thing if it did a good job of teaching disc jockeys contemporary radio problems, what was coming in radio instead of so many of the the instructional programs were so antiquated at that point. They were still teaching the young men to do the sound effects for the Lone Ranger instead of teaching them how to cue up a record and how to run a good tight show and and, uh, how to project themselves around the the disc jockey format of radio. And uh, Ron was with KJR about a year and a half, went briefly to KOL, and then realized his dream as he started his first school at Morrison Hall up in West Seattle. And uh, uh, Lee Perkins, of course, was with us for a long time, had several jobs as different program directors of different stations, and uh, now is in Tacoma. Uh, I became afternoon drive man a year after arriving at KJR and then became program director shortly after that and was program director of KJR from, I believe it was late 1961 uh, until 19, August of 1968, uh, when I became general manager, and was general manager from then till December of 1974. Uh, reflecting back on uh, on Top 40 Radio in 1960, it's remarkably different than today. First of all, the commercial limitation. We did not abide by the 18 commercial minutes an hour at that time. Uh, it was not unusual to have hours with 23 or 24 commercial minutes in the hour. Uh, spot breaks might consist of four or five consecutive commercials. Then one record would be played and then four or five consecutive commercials. But uh, that was the standard. That was the norm at that time. And uh, as a result, we were able to do it, uh, not only get away with it, but uh, be highly successful. The the middle-of-the-road stations at that time were really offering no challenge to the top 40s. The top 40s were, were running rampant over the competition, because the the middle-of-the-road stations really felt that a single or a 45-speed record was uh, immature by the very nature of that big hole in the center of it. It was some kind of a teenage fad, and uh, they stayed with their album music, uh, generally allowing a great deal of talk and uh, breaking away from their music now and then still for garden shows and lengthy news reports, lengthy stock market reports, and... uh, I think if one were to look back, they would find that uh, that KOMO, uh, KIRO, um, KVI was quite an aggressive new contemporary type middle of the road after Golden West purchased it, which I believe was in 1959, late 59. And uh, Bob Hardwick was there and Buddy Weber. And, uh, but basically, uh, the Comos and the Kairos uh, and KING, when they went back to good music, were, were really the weak sisters in the marketplace. And, of course, FM was uh, was unheard of at that point as far as any kind of uh, ever showing a measurable audience. So it was some years later that, uh, that uh, under Jay Ward's programming that uh, KOMO Radio uh, really became aware of itself and began to take advantage of, of not only its great power, and uh, but took advantage of uh, of what middle of the road contemporary middle of the road uh, information and music radio could be, and moved into its place of dominance that it still enjoys today. 
there was no country western station in town at that time. I think back to 1960, the formats went like this. KVI was a middle-of-the-road station uh, with personalities. Cairo still uh, relied heavily upon CBS. Uh, in 59, they still carried the Huskies with Pat Hayes. Cairo still had it. That was before the Huskies eventually went to KING, which was before they went to KVI, which was before they went back to Cairo. Uh, KXA, of course, at that time as a good music station, had very fine numbers. It was very, very successful then. Uh, generally ran in a sold-out state, and uh, that was prior to uh, Kixies entering the market in the good music field uh, or the easy listening field. Uh, KJR, of course, was a top 40. KOMO was, uh, was a very uh, uh, old-fashioned middle-of-the-road then. Uh, KING was quite a bright, alert middle-of-the-road station, uh, although, uh, although not able to compete really with the top 40s. KAYO stayed, uh, returned to top 40 again in 1961. Uh, Bill Sheila uh, visited me along with uh, Bob Pollock again and asked me if I would leave KJR and come back to KAYO. Uh, Jessica wished to return to the top 40 format. Um, I felt that I was moving into a good situation at KJR and just didn't think the time was right and was very happy at KJR. So they brought back to town a man named Chris Lane who came in and set up the top 40 format on KAYO. However, this time KAYO was very unsuccessful uh, in it. I don't believe they ever received more than 3% of the rate of the audience during their attempt to go back to top 40, and it was at the end of this span of attempting to be top 40, probably in 1963, that the decision was made by Jessica and then John DeMeo, who was there, to uh, and Bob Pollock to become a country station. And Chris Lane was the program director when KAYO switched over to Country Western, which I think would have been in 1963, if I'm not mistaken. Uh Another attempt at Top 40 Radio came along. Uh, KTW was finally sold by the Presbyterian Church to a man from San Francisco whose name I don't recall, but he had owned Kobe in San Francisco. And they made a brief attempt at uh, competing with KJR at that time that was unsuccessful. KJR finally achieved number one ratings in the, about the fall of 1960. And... Uh, a position that they've never really for any great period of time sacrificed since then. Uh, KOL went to good music uh, when Archie Taft sold the station to, I believe it was Seymour Whitelaw. And uh, this was prior to the Todson and Goodman ownership of the station. And uh, uh, they went uh, a good music format at that time. As a matter of fact, they came up with a, <clears throat> an art scheme which will never be forgotten. Uh, they had a logo of the station sitting on pilings on Harbor Island, and their bumper stickers and their billboards read, Music from the Mudflats. And it was a good music station. Uh, uh, I don't know what agency came up with that, but it's one of those slogans that uh, we will always recall that did not work. <laughs> and brought, K brought KOL in line for, a, for a, a lot of fun was poked at them over their Music from the Mudflats. And... Uh, um, some of the uh, some of the people in radio in Seattle. Then uh, we saw the uh, hiring in 1961 of Jim McGovern, uh, who had been working for KSND, and Jim McGovern came to work for KJR. Later to go to Spokane to KJRB as manager. Later on to Cincinnati, then back to Portland, and of course now managing KMPS. Um, Verl Wheeler, who graduated from Washington State. 
after working for Jessica Longston and Moses Lake, uh, then came to work at KJR. And, of course, Verl now manages uh, K. Smith Station in Cincinnati. Al Cummings moved over to KAYO in the meantime, where he stayed for for two or three years. Uh, talking about uh, the K. Smith organization, which was then called Seattle, Portland, Spokane Radio. Uh, it, of course, had begun in 1953 when Les Smith, along with Link Deller, and um, I forget the other individuals, purchased KJR. Uh, they added... Spokane, which was then KNEW, in uh, in 1958 or late late 57. I'm sorry, late 1957. Thanksgiving of 1957 is when they purchased KNEW in Spokane, and uh, oh, and KXL Portland had been added uh, also in about 1955. KXL then was a daylighter, uh, was a top 40 station in Portland, the number one top 40 station in Portland. Uh, little Bob Little was one of the disc jockeys, along with uh, Rick Thomas. And, uh, oh, I failed to mention, I think, that uh, going way back, that when I went to work at Cutie in Yakima, the newsman at that time was Ross Woodward for Wally Nellis Cogu, eventually went on. Hugh, has anyone told the story about the suit of Pearl Wanamaker against Fulton Lewis Jr. and how it ended up in Spokane? Well, here's a little treasure, then, that'll come out of this. When uh, KNEW in Spokane... Uh, was a, a mutual affiliate station and uh, really played the network the entire day and uh, was uh, destitute in those times. It was during those years that Pearl Wanamaker was the state superintendent of public instruction. And Fulton Lewis, Jr., uh, in a broadcast on the mutual network, uh, had his information badly edited by his news writers. And I f- cannot recall at this time who he thought he was talking about, but Pearl Wanamaker's name had been had been uh, installed in the news copy by accident, and he related on his newscast that afternoon from Washington, D.C., that Pearl Wanamaker, who was the superintendent of instruction in the state of Washington, was a card-carrying communist, had been with the Communist Party for some 17 years, and, uh, <laughs> of course, the uh, ship hit the sand quickly, and... Uh, and uh, Mrs. Wanamaker, the late Mrs. Wanamaker, of course, eventually sued the Mutual Network, but also sued the individual affiliates in the state of Washington. Now, every affiliate in the state of Washington did have to make a settlement, and an out-of-court settlement was made, and each of them paid on that settlement, and the Mutual Network paid a large amount of money. The only exception to this was KNEW in Spokane, where they were successfully able to prove in court that KNEW had no measurable listening audience at the time of that newscast, and as such, no damages could possibly be awarded. <laughs> and and their argument successfully held up in court, and Mrs. Wanamaker received no money from KNEW. So that basically describes the situation of KNEW when Les Smith purchased it <laughs> in 1957. And that will conclude our uh, special focus on Paddo Day from that vintage oral history recorded back in the late 1970s by Hugh Rundle of Washington State University and digitized by me for the Murrow College about, oh, nine or ten years ago now. A um, couple things uh, Pat O'Day mentions in there. He mentions lots of people, um, so many names that pop up, whether it's Wally Nelscog, who's kind of the generation before Pat in terms of uh, being a DJ in this area and then becoming a station owner. I have an interview with him. We'll, we'll play excerpts of at some point. Um, 
He also mentions uh, Jessica Longston, one of the first women to own a, real, a radio station here in the Pacific Northwest back in the 1950s. Mentions, um, I think, uh, one of the McCaw family members, the father of Craig McCaw and uh, Bruce McCaw, who owned uh, cable TV systems and radio stations back in the 40s and 50s. He mentions Les Smith, who owned KJR. Um, just this, Pat had a great memory and a great uh, sense of the details, able to uh, recall. And he, you barely, in that interview, you, I, I've listened to many of these interviews, actually all of them, that Hugh Rundle did with dozens of people. And in that, this is the one where... Um, Pat almost holds forth. I mean, we hear Hugh's voice a few times, and, and that's that's not me editing out Hugh asking questions. That's just Pat wound up and just delivering a, like a sermon of, of about his career and his influences and all the different people that he's recalling and the different station call letters. And uh, anyway, it's it's a, that's that's fun to play that here on uh, National DJ Day, National DJ Weekend. Also, it's the 65th anniversary coming up on February 1st of the debut of the name Pat O'Day, which of course. He was born Paul Berg, and Pat O'Day you know, was his DJ name, and it debuted 65 years ago uh, this February 1st, uh, back in 1959. This is Cascade of History. I am Felix Bunnell. It's our special tribute episode for National DJ Day and the 65th anniversary of Pat O'Day, and marking his 60 years as a pop culture renaissance man that uh, ended when he passed away back in 2020. Um, just a really cool guy, always really nice to me. I always look for excuses to call Pat to ask, interview him about different uh, different stories and things that were uh, going on uh, related to Northwest history. And he was always, always able to help me out and give me a good quote about something and, uh, you know, fill in the blanks on some particular story, whether it was about music or hydroplanes or uh, cruising and Colby up in Everett. And anyway, Pat was just a really, a really fun guy. And we, we miss him around here, but boy, he left a huge, huge legacy and uh, the kind of quality we expected out of our radio DJs here in the Northwest. But uh, anyhow, um, I want to remind everybody that we are coming live next week. We're going to be out on the road. We're taking the show down to Parkland. We'll be at the Trinity Lutheran Church in Thompson Hall. Uh, same old showtime, 8 p.m. You can show up at 7.30. There'll be warm-ups and stuff, and you can get a good seat. But uh, if you're anywhere near Parkland down in Pierce County, come and join us for the live version of the show of uh, Cascade of History. We'll be talking to the people who are trying to save the Parkland School and other people focused on Pierce County preservation. Um, no reservations required. Just come on in anytime you want. Um, we will be uh, will be um, taking all this, packing up all the gear, driving down there. Um, if you uh, want to invite people to to uh, come along with you, we've got all the details are at the Facebook page for Cascade of History. Go ahead and you should like that page, and you'll get all the different updates that we post all throughout the week about some of the stories that we don't get a chance to cover on the radio. Um, let's see. And then the podcast course is available. You can get that through the website. Um, and if you go to, uh, space 101.1 FM, or excuse me, space 101 FM.org, you'll get all the information about all the other great shows here on the radio station. And we're just a minute or two away from another great live episode of Jay's radio hour. He's digging deep into country music, which was interesting because we were talking about station KAYO. That's one of the first country stations here in the Pacific Northwest that's been on the air or went switched to the country format back in 1963. So, all right, uh, let's see. Um, this is Cascade of History. I am Felix Bunnell at Space 101.1 FM. Um, please join us next week, next Sunday night, live at Parkland, across the street from the Parkland School at the Trinity Lutheran Church. Go to, go to the Facebook page for all the details, and uh, we'll see you there in person. And uh, thanks for joining us on this episode of Cascade of History. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. 
Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it. Watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell.